0: Welcome to A Barrel of Oranges, the podcast where history and pop culture collide. I'm your historian and host, Kim Sherman, and I'm joined by my sister Pam Sherman, who is our resident literature and film geek. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back. Yeah, it is really nice to be back. We've had a little very short hiatus to, uh, in for my case anyways, to rest and recoup from the teaching semester a bit and uh, to get a few other projects out of the way, but we're back.
1: Yay! Yay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so we still have a couple of episodes planned for uh, this last bit of our season here for A Barrel of Oranges, and then we're going to take a little long break uh, until we hopefully, at least at some point in time later this year, get uh, a new season of Our Flag Means Death and then, of course, have more content to bring everyone. But um, we have still plenty more topics that we want to get into in the future, but we thought we would... Uh, kind of bookend it for now, Um, but we still got a couple things we're going to share with you. So today, what are we going to be talking about today, Pam? We're
1: talking about the historical and the fictionalized versions of the Republic of Pirates
0: today. Where the law lies doggo and plunderers plunderers rule. rule. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, we are introduced to uh, the fictional Republic of Pirates in episode three of Our Flag Means Death, season one, where Steve Bonnet kind of makes his debut, I guess you could say, as the gentleman <laughs> pirate, and we encounter um, some wonderful... Uh, guest stars on the series and new characters and all sorts of fun stuff and we're going to try to unpack that a little bit more towards the end of the episode but first like pam said we're going to jump into some of the historical stuff so um yeah do you have any questions pam before we get going i don't think so let's dive right in all right pirates ye be warned there be spoilers ahead So before we get into talking about the Republic of Pirates specifically, I wanted to talk about this location in the Caribbean a little bit more historically, like even before the arrival of Europeans. um, Of course, before colonization, we have a very thriving... Uh, array of indigenous groups that live all across the Caribbean islands and the Republic of Pirates historically was located in the Bahamas so that's what I'm going to focus on here today um, the Bahamas I had no idea um, actually consists of about 700 islands uh, which is just immense. crazy to think I mean about. some of them are probably really tiny but I had no clue Um, that, that we have that many islands making up the Bahamas. And the Bahamas were home to the Lucayan people from about 900 to 1500. So they would have been the predominant indigenous group in the area when the Spanish particularly come over with Christopher Columbus and everything in 1492 and on from there. And of course, that colonization process is going to have a detrimental effect on their population. Uh, when Columbus came over. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And why we still have Columbus Day in the U.S., I will just never know. Uh, Anyways, but 1492, of course, Columbus comes over. He makes landfall on the island that he calls San Salvador. And the Spanish describe the islands in this area as the Baja Mar, uh, which was kind of like a word for shallow seas. And... um, I actually have been brushing up on my Spanish lately and realized that Baja means short. So like, and when you're talking about like, you know, how tall someone is and that sort right, of thing. Like depth yeah. and stuff like that. So I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Makes sense. Um, so shallow seas and he, the later on the term was lent to this larger island chain. So we get Baja Mar going into Bahamas. Now, about that time, there are about 40,000 Lucayans living in that area on the Bahamian Islands, and the Spanish, of course, are going to come in and enslave them. Many of them will even be shipped back to Spain. Really good book that I highly recommend if you're interested in kind of looking at the indigenous experience in the Atlantic world. I taught a book last year to some of my graduate students called The Red Atlantic by Jace Weaver, and it does a really great job of kind of uh, a huge overview, really, from roughly the 1400s to, actually, no, I think they even go back further than that, about to the 900s or so, to um, the early 20th century to talk about, you know, the movement of indigenous peoples around the Atlantic world, including the encounters between Columbus and the Spanish and a number of the groups that are uh, in the, the Caribbean at this point. So many of them are enslaved. And of course, one of the byproducts of colonization is the spread of disease. Uh, with European diseases in particular, things like smallpox and typhus and all those types of things that many indigenous groups had no immunities to, we know that that's going to have a significant impact on the population and that kind of uh, exchange happening over time. So European diseases, enslavement, violence, all those things lead to the decimation of the lukaians within 25 years, uh, which is a very short period of time. Yeah. Now, even though that indigenous population is largely wiped out within a short period, the European settlement of the Bahamas doesn't really kick off until the mid-17th century. So about 1649 or so is really kind of the turning point. And that's when we see a group of English Puritans that were known as the Eleutheran adventurers. Um, The word Eleutheria from a Greek word meaning freedom. Uh, come to the islands to set up a colony that they hope is going to help protect their religious freedoms. So Puritans, of course, many of them dissenters from the, the Church of England during the Reformation. And of course, many of those Puritans end up in places like New England. But Some of them try other locations, too. Um, And some of them actually were the first to try even settling here in the Lower Cape Fear, uh, which didn't last for (laughs) about a year. And then they were like, nope, not for us. (laughs) Um,
2: It's weird to me that they
1: would pick pick the Bahamas, though. Like, it's such a different climate
0: from England. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, in many ways, the Caribbean was starting to kind of get a, a bit of a jumpstart you might say around that time period with plantation agriculture places like barbados and that sort of thing but i don't know maybe they're kind of hoping the same kind of thing is going to happen for them but yeah so they're looking for religious freedom they come to the islands set up a colony there and they are led by a man named william sales that's s-a-y-l-e-s And they first land at the place that ends up becoming known as Nassau Harbor in the future. And then they go on to another island that they call Eleuthera Island. And there is also a reef there that they eventually term the Devil's Backbone uh, that will (laughs) eventually wreck their ship. And they're kind of stuck there, so this like kind of like the destination is like decided for them of where they're going <laughs> to end up settling, and so they settle on this island they call Eleuthera. The survivors are going to be the first English settlers in the Bahamas, and they face a lot of challenges. Of course, food shortages is a big one. They have to try to actually surmount those with help from Puritans up in Massachusetts. So there's actually <laughs> kind of an Atlantic network going on, you might say, of connections between some of these groups that are settling in the Caribbean and in North America. So where they are located, around 1670 or so, the port that we will eventually call Nassau is established for commerce, but it was soon overrun by privateers and smugglers, as often happens (laughs) in port towns and port cities. On the island that becomes known as New Providence Island, Nassau was perfectly suited at this kind of like nexus, if you will, or crossroads of several very well-traveled shipping lanes that crisscross the Atlantic. And this is going to be very, very handy for pirates in the future who will be preying on merchant vessels because it's kind of like as if you were just hanging out at a big intersection on a highway or something like that. You know, you're going to (laughs) have a lot of traffic coming through there. It's going to be perfect. So Nassau, which is the town that we know of today that eventually becomes known as the Republic of Pirates, was originally known as Charlestown. And you know what? I think... Another Charlestown. (laughs) We have some uh, uh, English settlers in particular that are not very creative with their names because (laughs) the Puritans who actually settled here in the Lower Cape Fear of North Carolina... In, like, 1663, 64, if I remember correctly, they literally called their first settlement Charlestown, of course, after King Charles II. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's going to be, like... That kind yeah, of reminder. Like tra-
1: Charleston was called Charlestown
0: Charleston, too, South right? Carolina yeah. was originally Charlestown as well. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So you kind of have this kind of echoing. It's it's very similar to think about like Jamestown in Virginia mm-hmm. being called yeah. what it is after the monarch at the time. But So you've got Charlestown. The original Charlestown, however, was burned to the ground by the Spanish in 1684. And the governor of the Bahamas, uh, his name was Nicholas Trott, He decided to rebuild the town in 1695, and he named it Nassau after the new king, King William III, from the Dutch house of Orange, Nassau. So that's where we get that new name from. It's kind of from the Dutch language there. It was quite the challenge for Trott, however, to really make this work. Um, You know, again, they're working in a somewhat hostile environment for Europeans. Uh, Again, a lot of tropical diseases, issues with food shortages, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, trying to make sure that they stay connected into this larger web of trade is going to be important. So the challenge for Trot is that as the English become more invested in shipping and sailing and trade. They're also dealing with a lot of competitors and longtime enemies like the French. <laughs> and the French, of course, are going to end up going to war with the English as we see happening over and over again through this period. And at Nassau, there are no warships in the harbor to be able to protect the city. And there wasn't even enough manpower in the city itself to help man the fort that Trot had recently built there. So the actual, like... Defenses are very limited and it's almost just kind of like wide open to being captured. In 1696, a mysterious ship called the Fancy arrives in Nassau and her captain, Benjamin Bridgman, offered Trot a bribe. And this bribe was worth close to triple Trot's salary from the English government. Hmm. And not only that, he also offered his ship to... The governor, if he would allow the fancy's crew to unload the cargo they had on board with no questions asked. So Hmm. we start to kind of I see see lots of
1: red flags. Yeah, we're
0: (laughs) starting to kind of see some, you know, yeah, some dodgy stuff going on. Or perhaps some black flags. Oh, ooh. (laughs) Yes, even better. All right. Yeah. So uh, Trott decides to call a council meeting. He brings together, you know, his, you know, closely aligned, like, intimates within politics and says, you know, we got to come up with, you know, an answer for this. And he argued that the crew would actually double the manpower within Nassau to help defend it. So, you know, get the Fancies crew on board with all of this. You know, no pun intended, and they might be able to deter the French from sailing into Nassau and capturing the city. So he fails. The thing though, is that Trot does not mention that Bridgman has bribed him to try to get this deal to go through. So he's like, well, that'll just be my little thing on the side. I guess you could say he's going to be like, okay, well, if we go, go along with this, we'll get some, some ways of defending the city, but I'll also get a kickback eventually. So the council agrees, and with the fancy there uh, and the you know a larger manpower force, the French don't even worry about messing around with Nassau. It seems they kind of take things Too in a different work. direction. Yeah, it worked. So the fancy later on is then recognized as a stolen ship, however, and Bridgman. Um it was actually in disguise. It was none other than Henry Avery, who at the time was the most wanted pirate in Britain and in the I British told you guys, world. Black flags, black flags, black flags all around. So because of Trott's assistance to Bridgman slash Avery, and his collusion with all of this, Mm. he is he's Is he branded as a pirate?
1: Oh, no. No, He's he's
0: sacked from the governorship. He's just sacked from the governorship. Um, He's basically like, you know, his superiors are like, you let the most legendary pirate of our time go, um, you can also (laughs) leave your job. So... Probably good that it didn't wasn't any worse than that, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, if he was seen as, you know, being in cahoots with him, then could have been yeah, executed. Yeah. Have, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So a few years later in 1703, the French and Spanish forces end up raiding Nassau, kind of right around the beginning of the War of Spanish Succession. With that happening, they captured the new governor, which was uh Trot's rep- replacement. And uh, another governor arrives eventually with a few more dozen families to try to kind of beef up the population there in Nassau. And pretty much they're having to just kind of like survive in a way, kind of surviving in the woods and stuff Mm. like that, because there's so much like warfare going on in the area and so forth. So this new governor and these families that he's brought over to, to try to bolster the population, you know, we see that they are actually living in small huts in the woods and just kind of like, you know, creating shelters with palm trees and whatnot. And the is <laughs> go- living like castaways. I, know, I kind of think yeah. of like Swiss family yeah. Robinson in a way, exactly. Yeah. Or Robinson Crusoe. And he doesn't even, the new newest governor doesn't even bother to open his commission. Cause he's like, I can't really even do my job at this point in time. So once again, it ends up leading to the settlement being abandoned. So really like, not a lot is happening around Nassau going into the early 18th century. It's kind of a yeah. a wide open door for a new community mm-hmm. to arrive, right? So some of these early residents of Nassau make their living by salvaging the wrecks of ships that have run aground on nearby reefs. It's an area like, of course, with that devil's backbone and other places, very shallow, easy for a ship to run aground And uh, as we even see happening to our pirates in OFMD at times, you know, you could easily run aground. And so it kind of evolves in a way as kind of like an outlaw settlement. Think about it as like the wild, wild west version of the Caribbean. So they don't really have a lot of law and order, you might say at this point in time. And if storms and reefs did not do enough to bring in plunder for the residents of Nassau... They were actually quite ingenious. They would set lights, like lanterns, out on the reefs to lure in ships, kind of like our lighthouses, in a sense. And they would lure in the ships to potentially come in towards a harbor, and those ships would meet their doom. And then they could descend upon them. And potentially be raided. Exactly. Descend upon them and raid those vessels. Uh, relieve those vessels of their plunder and so forth. And uh, I have no idea what they did to the the people on board. That sounds kind of scary. <laughs> so um, maybe
1: we don't want to know. What we happened. probably don't <laughs> want to
0: know what happened. So essentially, again, you know, a, a lot of traffic coming through this area. It's an excellent location in the middle of a lot of the trade routes around the Atlantic world. And the Bahamas and Nassau soon started to attract pirates as the golden age of piracy began. So if you haven't done so already, I would highly recommend going back and listening to episode one of this podcast because we go into a lot more detail about how the golden age of piracy emerges in and around 1713 to 1715. And where that comes out of the end of the War of Spanish Succession, you've got thousands of sailors and privateers who had been employed during this period of naval warfare and so forth, and many of them are now out of work. And that included people like Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Teach, the historical Blackbeard, as he would become known. This is where I really kind of want to focus in more on specific people, because Hornigold really is going to be our central main character in the Creation of the Republic of Pirates. He and others wanted to continue hunting down the Spanish Navy after the end of the official kind of war was over between England and Spain and even France. And, you know, the Spanish Navy was still capturing English merchant vessels during this period. And he's like, we should have our retribution. We should be able to still go in and, you know, hunt after these people who are abusing their, their power, you might say. And so, They had originally been working out of places like Port Royal in Jamaica. But as we talked about in episode one of the podcast, Port Royal ends up suffering a devastating earthquake back in the 1690s. And it really just never recovers from there. Like the infrastructure, nothing really works well. Really what Hornigold and other burgeoning pirates, new pirates are looking for is a new home base. They need somewhere to be able to work out of. And in the inlets, keys, and shoals that are surrounding the island chain of the Bahamas, we see these newly minted pirates looking for a place where they can launch effective ambushes on unsuspecting vessels. So Nassau becomes their new
1: home. So quick question. Um, In the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, they kind of have a Republic of Pirates-esque island that they call
0: Tortuga. Is that a real place as well or fictionalized yeah, that's a great question. Tortuga actually was a real place, and it was a pirate's haven in a way. Um kind of predates the Republic of Pirates at Nassau, and it kind of was uh, you know, alongside the same time period that we're looking at the height of Port Royal, and more during the Buccaneer period, so late 17th century, the era of Henry Avery and Henry Morgan and those types of pirates – Um, They would have been, you know, kind of in these little ports. So, yeah, uh, Tortuga is just off the coast of Haiti. So very similar kind of situation. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean, if you've seen those scenes in Tortuga, I think we're getting (laughs) the same vibe that we do when we look at, like, OFMD and the Republic of Pirates and, and probably what we would expect historically a bit, too. So a place where... As Button says, the law lies doggo and plunderers rule. Plunderers rule. (laughs) Hi, crew, it's Kimberly here. I wanted to take a moment to say a huge thank you for listening to this episode of A Barrel of Oranges. This podcast is a labor of love and one that Pam and I look forward to sharing with you every time we craft an episode. You might be wondering though, how can I support A Barrel of Oranges? First, you can share the love for free on platforms like Apple Podcasts where you can rate and review the show. This makes discoverability easier and more likely that we might become a featured show in the future. Similarly, if you're on Instagram, make sure you're following us at Podcast Oranges and share our new episode post with your friends. Finally, we have a great new way that you can support us financially over on Patreon. For the cost of a coffee every month, you can join our online crew. Each month, our patrons receive an exclusive newsletter called The Galley and exclusive content like videos, mini pods, book recommendations, and more. I tell you, we've got some fun stuff coming up in the next few months and some really cool plans that I think you're going to love. Find out more at patreon.com slash podcast oranges. Thank you. So within a short period of time, the port was declared a pirate republic as Hornigold and others start to descend upon it. And Hornigold actually acts as one of its so-called governors. Uh, It will become a haven for men and women and others like Charles Vane, Calico Jack Rackham, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, and Bonnie (laughs) and Mary Reed, of course, who hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about in the future. And of course, Edward Teach, you've got steed bonnet later on so you know number of different you know our most notorious pirates of the golden age are going to have some kind of connection to nassau now only one english official remained in the bahamas when the pirates arrived you know going into the 17 teens And that was a man named Thomas Walker. Walker tried his best to attempt to recover some kind of authority once Hornigold and these other guys start coming in. But he's going to have a really hard time with that. Um, One thing he does initially is try to capture several of these buccaneers and pirates to try to keep them under control. And he puts some of them in jail. Uh, He throws some of them in jail, and then he goes off to Havana. Um, I think his son goes with him, an older son goes with him to Havana on a diplomatic visit to the Spanish. And when he returns to uh, Nassau, he finds that Hornigold and others have let their colleagues who have been imprisoned out of their jail cells and have basically taken over Nassau. Most of this was... I mean, was what did he expect would happen exactly. if he left the island? I know. It's kind of like, you know, just like... It seems like a bad choice. Leaving all around, you Leaving know? everything open for, uh, you know, something bad to happen. So a lot of this was also spurred on by the arrival of Henry Jennings, who we talked about briefly in episode one as well. Jennings was kind of that accidental pirate who had right. raided he was the that, one that huge? Raided the
1: vessel, yeah. Yeah, the, that had shipwrecked mm-hmm. right.
0: The big Spanish yeah. fleet that had shipwrecked off of Florida, I think it was, and a lot of people end up kind of descending upon that and creating, you know, lots of wealth as a result of that. Jennings shows up with a bounty of Spanish silver, which had been salvaged from that wreck, and well, Walker by that point in time knows who's in charge. He knows that he has pretty much had to step out of of that position. Under the influence of pirates, we see that Nassau grows incredibly quickly. Civilians and pirates would mingle together with logwood cutters and escaped slaves, fugitives, smugglers, unemployed seamen, as well as fences, as we will see in OFMD. Uh, arms dealers, sex workers, and a number of other people, many of whom were probably of unsavory backgrounds. Um, (laughs) Their homes and businesses were constructed out of everything from driftwood to other materials they had gathered from wrecked vessels. And um, they're kind of like patching them up with sailcloth and palmetto fronds. So it's definitely... I mean, in many ways, kind, kind of, of like, ra- kind
1: of ramshackle. <laughs> yeah, it
0: kind of does remind me of what we see in OFMD because you know it, we don't see a lot of exterior shots, but it just kind of seems like everything's just kind of small little hovels almost that are you know just kind of barely held together by whatever means possible. Um, it's a wonder any of those
1: places held up during hurricane exactly, season exactly or maybe they didn't maybe they had to rebuild right. after every hurricane season there's
0: <laughs> no telling yeah i guess it's a, an environmentally friendly way maybe of building if mm-hmm. we're just using recycled materials but you know yeah i guess we could say the pirates reclaimed,
2: rec- <laughs> reclaimed exactly
0: i mean nowadays you'd pay like or ridiculous so much huge money. huge amount yeah. for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, apparently the pirates were doing it first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so one writer says that Nassau looked like an encampment of castaways with sailors singing, dancing and drinking and fornicating increasing numbers of wives and prostitutes were settling on the Island, tending ale houses, mending clothes, cooking meals, and keeping the men company at night. So it's not just a male dominated society. You have a, a wide variety of people kind of offering, uh, support, I guess you could say through, you know, housing and food and all that kind of other stuff. So there were some more respectable citizens, you might say, uh, that had made the port their home in the past, and some of them ended up fleeing for their lives in the wake of the pirates ar- arriving and kind of taking over things. Now, the merchants as well who traded with the, the pirates of the port, you might think that they were immune from some of the violence, given the fact that they're you know, engaging in trade. Sometimes you know, pirates are bringing in tons of money, so they're going to be wanting to purchase items and so forth. But you know, those merchants sometimes didn't have it easy. One colonial official wrote that, quote, the pirates themselves have often told me that if they had not been supported by the traders, bringing them ammunition and provisions according to their directions, they could never have become so formidable, nor arrived to the degree of strength that they have. So there's a lot of cooperation going on there, kind of between, I guess you could say the civilian population and the pirates. But again, you know, it's, it's probably a pretty tenuous situation. So for the Pirate Republic to remain intact, Hornigold knew that he had to do something about the defenses of the island and around the port at Nassau. So he decides to embark on a plan to strengthen the fort And he knew, you know, if any nation, the French, the Spanish, even the English, of course, because the English aren't too happy about all these pirates out there, uh, who, you know, with the exception of Hornigold, who we'll talk about in a moment, they're starting to kind of raid, you know, if you've got a British pirate, they're probably going to be raiding British vessels as well. So there are a number of uh, imperial forces that would love to shut down a place like Nassau. And Hornigold knew that if they were to send just three or four men of war out to Nassau, they could completely wipe it out in no time. So they're like, we got to do something or we're going to be screwed. With fortifications, they might live to fight another day. And who do you think he puts in charge of this program? Hmm, maybe someone named Edward Teach. Exactly. Edward Teach is going to be the one really kind of put in charge of creating a better defensive system for nassau and he and others are going to get their hands on more cannons pulleys shot powder all sorts of stuff and they're going to really ramp up those defenses get a lot more guns in place and that sort of thing to ensure that they are ready in case any kind of threat arrives But this was also kind of the last straw, you might say, for Thomas Walker, who is still hanging around, that English official who basically can't do his job anymore. He and his family have attempted to hold on to their power in New Providence for an entire year, and it's just not... I mean, they're just grasping at straws at this point. So as the pirates are rearming the fort, as Teach is succeeding in his plan Hornigold is happy with things, the walkers flee uh, because they know that, you know, this is basically the end of English rule here at Nassau. So from there, the Hornigold, uh, the Hornigold kind of faction, you might say, and uh, all of his fellow pirates are going to start to raid Spanish vessels and plantations in the vicinity of the Bahamas They quickly established themselves as a group known as the Flying Gang, um, which is just kind of a loose name given to a lot of the pirates that kind of worked within the network, you might say, of the Hornigold faction. And his authority, you know, was not always absolute. There were some people who, you know, kind of questioned some of that, but he remained the formidable force to be reckoned with in Nassau, or as by this point in time, it became known as the Republic of Pirates. And I kind of liken it to like almost like the nursery of new pirates, if you will, if we're going to go with metaphors. <laughs> it's kind of like where we see the new up-and-coming pirates being trained, a training ground, if you will, um, that launches the storied careers of a lot of men, including Sam Bellamy, who actually his influence is eventually going to supersede that of Hornigold's, and that's mostly because... Hornergold will refuse to attack English vessels and Dutch vessels. And Hmm. a lot of his contemporaries, especially some of the younger pirates coming around, like Bellamy and Teach and others, are like, we don't give a fuck who we're attacking as long as we are getting what we want off of it or, you know, messing up with imperial power or whatever we're talking about. So So, like,
1: any idea why he wouldn't attack the English and the Dutch or...?
0: It's a good is question. I have to look into saw a little the bit more. English as
1: kind of like because yeah. he was from England, like he I didn't want so. to touch
0: those. Yeah, I think it's kind of maybe. like his principle of kind of like not attacking, you know, his mm. those of his nationality, that sort of thing. Um yeah. I will have to look into that a little bit more because I th- I have a feeling we're going to talk more about Bellamy in the future. Yeah. But, you know, what we actually see happening then is is Bellamy moves on to New England and kind of claims most of that like stomping ground as his Domain, And then that leaves Nassau to Hornigold and his protege, Edward Teach. And of course, we're going to see Teach on the rise in the coming months after this, you know, kind of heading into 1717. If we're looking at a timeline here, Teach is starting to make a name for himself, really. Um, He is starting to uh, be hailed as Blackbeard. And he goes on a bit of a rampage throughout the Caribbean, uh, both of them together, working together. And they amass a fortune along the way. And then one day, we see a gentleman by the name of Steed Bonnet, bloodied and battered from a fight with the Spanish, arriving in Nassau to seek out protection from his fellow pirates and... We know that from there on, Edward Teach's career is never going to be the same again. So, you know, oh, ding, 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 <laughs> cue the beach boys. Um, we have uh, <laughs> a new story that emerges from there. So that's a little bit of the background there, of how we get to this place that is kind of a, an anomaly in the, the Caribbean, a place that is just for pirates and just for those who are working outside of the law. So there we yeah. go nassau nice. the republic of pirates
1: i mean when you think about kind of how strategic that location was as you said it was kind of like a crossroads for all these like different trade routes and things like it was pretty ingenious that they were able to take that area over and fortify it and basically make it a home base for anybody who calls himself a pirate so yeah
0: definitely I mean, it, location, oh, well, they say, like, location, location, location. It's, yeah. it's, like, so important to any kind of strategic purposes. And, and then, like you said, yeah, to fortify that as well. Very important. Yeah. And also,
1: like, you know, if, you know, a, someone is looking for work on a pirate ship... Maybe they've ended wherever they, whatever pirate ship they were working with before. That's probably like a place that they could look for more work or whatever on a different vessel.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure like taverns and like little, you know, whatever kind of little hovels. I keep using that word, but um, like hovels, whatever. (laughs) I don't know why, Um, but like whatever little businesses and so forth. There are probably a lot of other like transactions going on here. Lots of negotiations. Lots of like you know, like you said, hiring people on to cruise, you know, I mean, again, going back to Pirates of the Caribbean, that's kind of what's happening in, mm-hmm. is it, I was about to say episode, is it the second Pirates movie? Yeah. Yeah. It's that, the second one because it has um, to do
1: with Jack's debt to right, Davy Jones right. or whatever. They're trying to get all these men to join this crew.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I lo- always love the one who's like, I've always wanted to go to sea and then, um... Uh, yeah. and Gibbs is like oh well you'll do <laughs> you know kind of like yeah, you know right, like sooner than you think <laughs> exactly you know you'll be able to sail the seven seas or for like, the rest of your life I, I
1: always wanted to sail the seas forever yeah and he's like sooner than you think and exactly. it's like literally true because they're going to give them to David Davy Jones so like yeah yeah you will be sailing the seas forever <laughs> but,
0: yeah and yeah. so yeah it I, always cracks me up gosh I love those movies um Yeah. So thinking about now our flag means death and the Republic of Pirates. Yeah. I mean, we kind of see that pop up and we see it in episode three and then a couple of subsequent episodes when we have some stuff going on in the background as the main action is taking place on board the revenge. But yeah, I mean, uh, when the, the crew of the revenge is looking to essentially Uh, find a way to get rid of the English officers that they have had on the ship uh, since episode one. They're looking to potentially sell them back to the English Navy. They are actually, actually at this point in time, they only have the one left. They have Hornbury, right? It's only one left. Um, So they're looking for a way to get rid of them. And uh, someone suggests that they need a fence, uh, which is essentially a go-between, you might say, to be able to get this negotiation happening. And, uh... Yeah. Really, it it was uh, Button's idea for them to go to the Republic
1: of Pirates. Yeah, I know. And then Steed's like, oh, this is the perfect time to, like, launch my, like, claim as the gentleman pirate and, like, show my face and, like, kind of put on this little show for his fellow pirates. So,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean... In a lot of ways, there are some interesting parallels with that episode and what we know about the historical Steed Bonnet. Because even though it wasn't quite as a... a celebratory kind of entrance into the Republic of Pirates for the historical (laughs) body. He was already gut stabbed. Because he was already gut stabbed. Yeah. He was already in pretty bad shape by that point. Um, It's kind of like if you took the episode and kind of like flipped it around, we we would end up Mm -hmm. with the right order of events. Yeah. He's kind of announcing himself to his pirate brethren that he is one of them and he's hoping that they will accept him and, you know, give him um, some support. So yeah, yeah, we see that happening, but... Yeah, I, I quite love the idea of, of how they present the Republic of Pirates as this kind of place where, yeah, like anything goes, but at the same time the pirates are kind of like, ah, it's not really cool anymore, you know, it's not really like the place it used gentrified. to be. it <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's too touristy, you know. there's Like uh, I think like Roach steps off the vessel and he's like, is that a gift shop? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you kind of imagine like any kind of cool place that, you know, maybe you felt like you were a bit of the the hipster crowd that was there like yeah, before it was cool. Not, and then not niche anymore. Exactly. So I quite like that. And and you kind of yeah. see that too with kind of like uh even the way that Steed reacts to to like different things that he sees because he's kind of like still quite the outsider in a way. Kind of the tourist mm. if you will. Um and yeah. I love that that little uh, vignette where he and Hornberry, he's you know like pulling him along, and they stop by, you know. The skeleton or whatever it is that has a little warning sign on it, and he's like, yeah. "Lucius sketches beside this. It's like so authentic or whatever. It's so authentic, <laughs> kind of like you know, like tortured. You would you would have your selfie taken by some kind of you know, yeah. like Literally I don't know, tourist You're spot. Like just so yeah, excited.
1: <laughs> You'd like go to this place you've been hearing about for years. You know
0: exactly. So you know, I think it's it's kind of funny to see how those reactions are taking shape and like things that we think about like modern ways that we do things today when we go to like vacation spots or tourist spots or whatever and or a tourist trap you might even say and uh yeah that's kind of the vibe that I get from all that but I mean, it's also here in the Republic of Pirates that we get some of the backstory, at least a, a peek into the backstory of Jim and Oluwande, um, and how their kind of relationship or friendship started, because they have connections with a little bar called Spanish Jackie's. And of course, that's where we get introduced to some fabulous characters, including Spanish Jackie herself and one of her, what is it, 19, I can never keep track of how many husbands there are, uh, Geraldo. Is it 18 or 19? I don't know. I don't remember. 20? They just keep growing. But then also they keep dying, so who knows?
1: (laughs) I feel like it was, like, 20, and then, you know, she killed whatever the first guy's name was. And then, because I I feel like.
0: Yeah, and and Jim kills one of them, and then Geraldo ends up croaking it by the end of this at the yeah. end of the season. I don't know. I don't know. It's confusing. Yeah. Anyways. I
1: feel like, and we're probably going to get even more husbands, <laughs> you know, or spouses. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Two. Maybe so some it's wives. It's more
0: confusing. I know. So, um, I think that, yeah, gosh, there's there's some fun stuff I think that we could find out more about Spanish Jackie in the future. I mean, it's even kind of like the, the laughing part, like laughing at the part later on in the season when, uh, Chauncey Badminton is like, why did they call you Spanish Jackie or whatever? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, we get Leslie Jones and Fred Armisen, and of course they're fantastic. So brings in a whole other layer of, of humor there. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that the Revenge crew is quite quite ready, especially Steve is quite, not quite ready for what he encounters at Spanish Jackie's.
1: Yeah. And um, also like they just almost you know, like Steed himself, they don't really like fit into the normal like pirate crowd. They're like still kind of like outsiders
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. to that culture to a certain extent. So
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just keep thinking about like the nose jar incident and (laughs) you know, it's like the the grime and the the gruesomeness of piracy is kind of like, you know, and here's here's Steed and Lucius and they're all white, you know, outfits and everything. And it's like immediately like Lucius steps off the the ship and he's like covered in blood and stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, I mean like (laughs) to be a pirate, you got to get dirty. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, you can't really maintain this pristine image anymore if you're going to be a part of that world. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Of course that leads us to the scenes later on with this, the ship that, uh, they get kind of enticed onto, tricked onto by Geraldo to be able to fence the, the Englishman, And of course it is a Spanish vessel, the Spanish Navy, and that leads to almost a really bad ending for Steed before yeah. he is rescued by Blackbeard. Just as an aside, there was a great little uh, panel that was presented by IMDB for Pride Month uh, earlier in June that... Uh, was kind of like a little exclusive thing that I remember we watched. And uh, hearing Reese Darby talk a little bit about uh, the filming of that scene in which (laughs) Blackbeard is like, you know, in his full get up and like the hair and makeup and everything. And he kind of like, you know stomps over across the deck of the ship and, you know, is like leaning over him to save him or whatever. And he's like, I fell in love with Blackbeard at least. (laughs) So, I mean, I think kind of like what he said, he's like, I didn't see my friend Taika.
1: Exactly. I just saw this like
0: incredibly good looking. Yeah, exactly. Kind of
1: bad, bad boy, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, it's quite funny to think about that. I love that. Instantly smitten. That swagger you kind of see coming into the frame. And then, of course, you get the transition into the next episode. But, yeah, I mean, the Republic of Pirates po- pops back up again in future because it, it is kind of like a negotiation spot. You know, it's like I, I kind of feel like, you know, it's like if you want to find a pirate, you go there kind of thing because that's yeah, where. And that's exactly what the British yeah, do later. Exactly. Whenever they're trying to negotiate with
1: izzy hands Mm -hmm. about you know catching up with steed and
0: blackbeard
1: again so yeah
0: and when izzy gets kicked off the ship you know that's where he goes that's where he goes so you know it's kind of like again a home base if you will for a lot of that so yeah well fingers crossed we'll get some more fun stuff from the republic of pirates in season two i have a Good feeling we might yeah, have that so. so um <laughs> you know i feel like it's you know kind of a recurring character in and of itself as a location so all sorts yeah. of fun stuff well one of the people that eventually comes into season one of our flag means death who has connections through the republic of pirates all because of izzy hands and the english ending up there and having these negotiations with Spanish Jackie, and all of them really kind of really realizing that they hate Steve Bonnet uh, because of what he has essentially done either to them or to someone that they love. (laughs) Um, Even in the case of Izzy, of course, you know, what they've done to to Ed, to Blackbeard himself. Um, We see a character show up in episode eight um, who (laughs) has a basis in history, and Pam is going to help us meet this new pirate, and that is... Calico Jack Rackham. Woohoo!
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like in OFMD, like, Calico Jack, it's like, you just instantly, like, despise him. He's, like, the worst. Yeah. Like, kind of frat boy, like, Ugh, yeah. ex-boyfriend, like, yeah.
0: Cringy. The worst. But they feel
1: he kind of, like oddly grows on you just a little bit, like, the more that you watch the episode, which I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. But yeah, so the historical Calico Jack, of course, his real name was John Rackham. He was born on the 26th of December, 1682, so that would mean about the time of 1718, he would be close to 40, around 40 Yeah, he'd be in his, like, early 40s, yeah. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So yeah. And then I thought it was kind of funny. Um, Colin Woodard, um, who we've used a lot, you know, his books as kind of historical basis for the podcast, he very often describes uh, Calico Jack as flamboyantly dressed, mm. which I thought was quite funny, um, considering that you know, we kind of think of Steve Bonnet as flamboyantly yeah. dressed as well. And actually his nickname, Calico Jack came, from the calico material that um, his outfit was made out of. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of why he was called that. But, yeah, Calico Jack, he sailed with quite a few different pirates. Um, Of course, he had associations with Hornigold and Edward Teach, um, but he also sailed with Charles Vane, Mary Reed, and Anne Bonny. And he famously had an affair with Anne Bonny, who (laughs) ran away with him after her husband, who was a sailor, uh, found out about their affair. (laughs) Um, And apparently, she allegedly became pregnant with Rackham's child at one point. But their flagship was called the Kingston, which I think is still a pretty short-lived amount of time Mm -hmm. um, on that vessel. But when they were all captured in November 1720 in Spanish Town, Jamaica, Calico Jack, he was um, hanged in Port Royal and his body was put on display as, you know, kind of general warning to anyone who might be thinking about pirate activities and Anne Bonny, as well as Mary Reed, I believe, um, they claimed that they were both pregnant at the time. And so they got stays of execution Mm -hmm. and we don't really know what happened to them after that. But yeah, that's kind of a general overview. Um, He's been featured not only in our flag means death as a character but also in the video game Assassin's Creed Black Flag of
0: course and mm-hmm. in the Starz series Black Sails cool again i the flamboyant dressed thing like it's really fascinating to think about that because again like you know i would love to know kind of like more about the style of clothing that he's wearing i think the calico itself was a big aspect of that. I mean, it's very like the Indian style fabrics and so forth that would have been brought in through the empire. Yeah. I mean, all that would have been seen as very, um, like rich and, uh, something that kind of gave off the idea of wealth as well. Yeah. Yeah. Calico Jack episode eight was an episode that of course we have talked about our love of the end of episode eight because, you know, it has our, our favorite sequence with, my favorite song in it, but you know, the beginning of that episode is kind of hard to get through the first time around. It was kind of like really sad to watch, you know, here we have like, you know, this, this relationship blossoming with Ed and Steed and, you know, you're kind of feeling warm and fuzzy about it. And you're like, where's this going to go? And then, yeah, it's like the the ex shows up basically and, and it's all turns and- everything. Yeah. Topsy turvy and like, you know, Ed's kind of almost kind of putting on the mask again in a way of like, or maybe not so much a mask, but also kind of like reverting back to ways of surviving. Maybe, yeah, like yeah. Not that it's like necessarily him that's coming right. through, but just how yeah. he used to behave to to survive. So, yeah, exactly. And kind of like having this past and that sort of thing, and like, you know, Steed in, in many ways has to learn how to deal with that, and he also kind of accepts that. Ed has a past before him and is pretty open to not really worrying about that. But then also Jack just kind of wedges in there and ends up, yeah, driving that wedge between him and Ed. And they have to make a choice about things. And, yeah, things don't really end too well at one point. Um, It's kind of a a hard little bit to get through there, uh, essentially a breakup episode. And then of course things kind of change a little bit by the end of it, which is even more, uh, scary the first time around watching it. You're like, what the heck's happening? You know, what's going to happen with the English showing up and everything. But, <laughs> you know, we find out that Jack is kind of the one sent there to, uh, to both lure Steed Bonnet and the revenge into a place where he can easily be captured, but also to, uh, bring, edward teach you know back to the republic of pirates and and kind of keep him safe and that sort of thing so yeah it's kind of a a interesting episode i know the second or third time i think about the second time that we decided to watch all of OFMD through i remember us getting up towards that episode and me being like i really don't want to watch this and then of (laughs) course the like you said the more that we've watched that episode we found so much more humor in it and it's like we can see the you know from the relationship standpoint the The funny stuff alongside of the heart-wrenching stuff so yeah hmm yeah i guess it
1: remains to be seen whether calico jack will pop back up again last we saw him he was hit with cannonball by the english ship so Hmm. you know i will it be the end for calico
0: jack or will
1: (laughs) he pop back up like nothing's ever happened (laughs)
0: With the kind of feeling of, of, you know, on the one hand, it's like, you know, okay, he's hit with a cannonball. That's undeniable that he's probably dead. But on the other hand, we have this weird logic within the David Jenkins School of Pirate History (laughs) that we have no idea what's going to happen to characters. Um, So, you know, just look at how many times our main characters have been stabbed and survived.
1: Yeah, they Um, act like (laughs)
0: nothing's wrong with them the next day. (laughs) They're up and about in like two days time. I think, I think... We can expect anything at this point, but yeah. yeah. Um, I also think it's funny too, looking at how they decided to portray Jack as this kind of like cowboy almost. You know, he's got mm. that kind of like Wild West yeah. vibe, and you know the way he's dressed, he's kind of like almost like a, I don't know, Davy Crockett kind of figure in a yeah. sense of like this like like has wild, wild frontiersman around and stuff. Exactly, like, he's got like bare teeth hanging off of his. Mm-hmm off of his and like uh, all this necklaces. like fringe
1: on his like outfit yeah. as well it's very kind of
0: cowboy like I don't know yeah <laughs> it's it's quite funny i like I like that a lot, and of course again, another great guest star we get will Arnett, who you're who mm-hmm. just like you know comedy legend, so uh, I think it would be fun to see any of those people back again in season two, so yep. Yeah. For yeah, yeah, sure. so that's a good fit, I think the bringing in calico jack we're talking about the the Republic of pirates was a a good choice. So thank you for including that, Pam. Of course. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up today?
1: Can't think of anything. Not much going on in Pirate Land right now other than, you know, continued writer's strike and yeah. waiting for season two announcements and things. But, you know,
0: yeah, pretty I know. positive we'll great. hear
1: something soon.
0: So, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I continue to be like just try to be as chill as possible. Although I will allow that the other night I had a a, a panic attack in my sleep, which happens every (laughs) once in a while. And I woke up from a dream in which I had dreamed that the (laughs) the season two date release date had been announced. (laughs) And I was like, is this what I'm, what is this? What is happening now in my brain? (laughs) I'm just like, what is wrong with me? But yeah, it's been pretty quiet in the OFMD world. Um, we love to see, of course, the support that, Uh, The actors of the OFMD community have been giving to the writers that are on on strike and fighting for better uh, residuals and and all that kind of stuff because, yeah, it's really shitty what some of these streaming companies are doing to creatives. So we got to stick together as creatives and, uh, you know, also seeing wonderful fans, like, really supporting stuff as well. So we'll just keep... Doing what we're doing, and fingers crossed, we'll get season two soon. But in the meantime, uh, we have one more episode for you for season one of A Barrel of Oranges, and that will be coming out in a couple weeks' time. So we will get that out to you. And of course, you can always find little updates from us on Instagram at podcast oranges, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com/podcastoranges you can join up and get access to some fun little things each month that we get out to you, newsletters, stuff like that, little mini pods, and uh, all sorts of stuff. So until then, stay pistol-proof. Stay pistol-proof, friends. Bye. Bye. Has been a production of Electric Kelpie Media. All research was conducted by Kimberly Sherman and Pam Sherman. Find us online at slash oranges and on social media at Podcast Oranges.